Glory to labor, comrades, and welcome to the Cabinet of Fever Dreams. Tonight, the second chapter of Journals from the Institute. This novella was originally released December of 2021 and is read to you tonight by yours truly with musical backing by the Dark Side of Music and Miyu. This tale belongs to the United People's Institute of Science series. If you'd like to hear more about the Institute, make sure to check out the past few episodes and tune in for future chapters of the novella. New episodes come out every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. With all that said, prepare your documents. We are heading to a darker time. November 6th, 1987. This morning, much like the morning prior, I woke up to the howls of the hotel siren. As I marched through the woods with the lab coat wearing procession, I found myself wondering if my commutes would ever feel sane. By the time we reached the vaulted ceilings of the institute, it became painfully clear that the normalcy of my commute was going to be the least of my worries. Today I was introduced to my subject of study. With the breed of science being explored at the institute, there is an understandable reluctance to capture data in an easily digestible form. Most of our findings are to be kept on ciphered microfilms so that no information can fall into the wrong hands. This morning, however, Dr. Herkel gave me a manila envelope with clearly printed text. I was to incinerate the documents as soon as I read them. My subject of study is Real X0422, a roll of film retrieved from an abandoned cinema in Central Asia shortly after the First World War. The description of the film reel was short and clinical. Film reel, no audio, 14 minutes, 15,120 frames, 295 meters. Contains footage of shaman singing on stage. 4.32 minute mark, more individuals appear. Audio of shaman song present even though film reel is silent. View with caution, adhere to all safety measures. The safety measures made up the grand majority of the documents. The tape was never to leave the viewing room attached to my office. There was a set of goggles for me to wear, developed specifically for the occasion of viewing the film reel. When observing a film reel, I was to handcuff myself to the chair to ensure my own safety. The safety measures were somewhat unnerving to read, but I was relieved to find out that my study wouldn't censor on any unsettling parasites from Antarctica. The comfortable layout of my research station calmed me as well. The space is divided into two rooms. The first room is designated for manipulation of the film reel itself. Just about every bit of cinema-related technology from the past hundred years is on display. Different brands of editing tables and cameras and lights cover the whole laboratory floor to ceiling. I would imagine that even the best funded of film studios do not have access to this sort of equipment. The second room is considerably less crowded. The second room is a private cinema. There is only a single chair and a pair of handcuffs and bulky goggles attached to it, but the seat is comfortable. The past few days of my life have been immensely stressful. The nature of the Institute has been weighing on my mind and I have at times doubted my sanity. Yet as I made preparations to view the film reel, my mind started to relax. I almost convinced myself that Dr. Aliyeva's research was a disturbing outlier in the scope of science being done in the Institute. I almost convinced myself that I would be able to unravel the mysteries of the tape presented to me without much mental anguish. Watching the shaman quickly obliterated my naivete. It is difficult to put into words what I saw in that dark cinema. Through a purely factual point of view, the tape is rather simple. An old man with a feathery headdress sits on a stage and performs a throat song while playing a small drum. About five minutes into the film reel, other people start to appear on the scene. 
These individuals seem to be disturbed by their presence on stage at first, but after initial shock wears off, they begin to chant to the backing of the shaman's song and drums. Each minute the crowd grows at a faster rate until the stage is finally too full to fit more. Then the tape ends. From a purely factual point of view, the tape is simple. The part of the tape that still haunts me, even as I write into my journal, is difficult to put into words. There is no conceivable way that I should have been able to hear the shaman's song, or his drum, or the chant of the crowd, yet I did. The film reel was silent, but it was as if I was standing behind the camera myself, hearing the shaman's performance in the flesh. The auditory aspect of the reveal is discomforting, but what has truly disturbed me, what has made me seek out another helping of gin from the young man in the lobby, was the look in the shaman's eyes. Both the tape and the shaman are old. I have no doubts that I was watching footage of a man long dead, yet as I sat in that cinema, I was overcome by an inescapable feeling that the man on the screen was looking straight at me. The sorrow in his gaze is impossible to describe. It was as if he was mourning for me, as if he knew we were both trapped in the institute against our will. I do not know what the future holds. I do not know how I will make sense of the tape, how I will adjust to this new miserable existence, how I will stay sane while being exposed to the halls of the Institute on a daily basis. I do not know what the future holds, but I fear it. November 7th to November 14th, 1987. I have been feeling far too sluggish to write these journal entries. Each day I have been waking up to the blaring of the hotel siren and marching through the freezing forest. Each day I have been putting on those unwieldy goggles and chaining myself to the seat just so I can endure that distressing footage. Each day I drink. The young man in the lobby has given up on his lies about the gin, he sells me. It's not gin. The concoction he sells me is simply put into western liquor bottles to justify the price. What he's really providing me with is his cousin's bathtub brew. But I don't care. The drink burns on the way down, but the numb euphoria it provides is the only thing that I have to look forward to at the end of the day. I have seen the original film reel roughly a hundred times. I have made copies of the footage and found no difference in auditory hallucinations and emotional distress it instills. I have inspected every single frame through every conceivable method and still, I have found nothing of note. All I know is that it is not the film reel that causes the discomforting effects. It is the footage itself. Each moment that I spend at work is more draining than the last. I do not know how much longer I can keep this up. The idea of escaping, be it to return home or defect to the West, is out of the question. Dr. Herkel was very clear about the research position at the Institute being a lifetime position. The trains that brought me here are heavily monitored by the Soviets. It would be impossible to even leave the station without being noticed. An escape by foot would be even more ridiculous. The step around us is beyond inhospitable. If I was to journey out alone, I wouldn't last a fortnight. The entrance to my laboratory is about four stories up the scaffolding of the Institute. The thought of leaving my job through a more radical means has occurred to me, but I cannot bring myself to do it. Meeting my end on the mosaic floor of the Institute is a repulsive image, but what scares me even more is the question of what the people in power would do to me if I survived the jump. No. 
There is no way out. There is no way out, so I drink. It is late. My bottle has run dry. I know that in a couple hours the siren of the hotel will wake me once more. But if I do not cool my parched throat, I will not get any sleep to begin with. I hope the young man in the American shoes is still in the lobby. November 15, 1987. My body is in shambles. Food is impossible to hold down and the aching pain behind my eyes drains at every ounce of energy I have in me. The impending specter of the hotel sirens tells me I need to sleep, yet I cannot rest until I capture the day's events. Last night, after writing my journal entry, I made my way down to the lobby in search of more liquor. To my luck, or perhaps misfortune, the black market peddler was still loitering around the Rusalka. Seeing the man in the lobby only strengthened my need for chemical release, but when I attempted to make a purchase, he informed me that he no longer had any liquor left on his person. For a couple of minutes, the young man attempted to sell me other chemical stimulants, but when I rejected his offers of drugs, he came up with another solution. The clock in the lobby had long passed midnight, and the prospect of new customers was minimal. The black market salesman invited me to his cousin's apartment to sample the gin straight from its source. With my throat and my soul demanding an answer to my thirst, I obliged. During the short walk to the source of gin, the man introduced himself to me. His name is Moshin. Along with his cousin, Moshin traveled to the city half a decade ago in hopes of starting a legitimate fruit import business. The profits from the wholesale of apples and oranges, however, provided to be far too slim to survive upon. The bribes required to operate a legitimate business in the Union concerned the same sums and same people as those of a black market operation. With a legitimate business being impossible to sustain, Moshin and his cousin pivoted their wares from fruits to more profitable goods like western clothes and homemade liquor. It didn't take long for the true intentions of the black marketeer to show. After describing to me in detail how his smuggling operations functions, Moshin started to ask questions about my work. He wasn't making conversation. The black market doesn't just carry physical goods. Moshin was trying to figure out if I possessed any information worth selling. I told them in no uncertain terms that I would not speak about my work. As far as I remember, his question ceased after my stern rebuke. My recollection of tonight's events, however, does not stretch far past my entry into the apartment. Recall meeting Moshin's cousin, a heavy man whose name I cannot remember, and I have a distinct memory of looking at the Rusalka from the balcony of their apartment. The site of the hotel simply served as a reminder of the institutes and the horrid science that happens within its twisted halls. With hopes of forgetting the existence of the confounding shaman recording, I drank the concoction that Moshin and his cousin brewed in a bathtub. Each sip of that burning stew divorced me further from reality. The taste of the drink would never be something that I would seek out in my old life, but as an employee of the Institute, I knew. I knew that the liquor was the only thing that would keep me sane. Whatever euphoria I felt the night prior was suffocated by the hotel sirens. I woke up on the floor of my room, still drunk. The elevator in the hallway was grinding and coughing with activity, as my colleagues were already making their way down to the lobby. The nausea and exhaustion were stronger than anything I had ever felt in my life, but I knew not showing up to my duties was out of the question. Unshaven and smelling of liquor and sweat, I made my way down to the lobby. 
The road to the Institute has never been a pleasant one to walk, but that morning made everything that came before it seem like a stroll in the park. I was weak. The forest was one jagged block of ice. Each breath I took scratched through my body with an intensity that rivaled the bite of the bathtub liquor. I tried to move in unison with the lab coat procession, but my sickness kept me trailing behind the group. By the time we reached the guard shack, I had vomited multiple times. With the taste of stomach acid in my mouth and the growing numbness in my limbs, I realized I had forgotten to bring my identification papers. The Institute's paranoia about spies is merciless. If a member of staff attempts to enter the facility without appropriate documentation, they are to be shot on sight. Had I realized my lack of papers earlier, I would have retreated back to the hotel. Yet my realization came just as I was standing in front of the guard. When I admitted I had no identification, the guard's usual cheeriness faded away. In a solemn tone, he told me what I already knew. He told me it was his duty, without question, to execute me. For a moment, I was certain that my life would meet a sudden hungover end in a freezing forest. Yet as my executioner stared me down, his face softened. He leaned forward and looked out of his shack. Upon realizing there were no other staff members waiting behind me, he quietly suggested I quickly make my way inside of the Institute and never forget my documentation again. I was so shaken by my sudden brush with death that I didn't even thank the man. I just staggered my way into the elevator, unsure how I felt about being alive. The safety protocols of handling real XO4-22 are clear. The shaman footage is only to be consumed while wearing the safety goggles. The shaman footage is only to be consumed while being fastened to my seat with the handcuffs. Consuming the footage under any other condition is considered extremely dangerous. That morning, however, I neglected all of the safety rules. It might have been the alcohol withdrawal. It might have been the frustration for my research not going anywhere. Or it might have been a product of my suicidal ideations. I do not know what possessed me to walk into that viewing room and turn on the projector without preparation, but it made all the difference. The shaman's song still rang through my ears without explanation. His eyes still radiated an incomprehensible sadness, but the footage instilled a wholly new sense of discomfort in me. I tried to search inside of myself for what had changed, but the answers to my confusion weren't inside of me. They were being projected on the wall. I immediately shut off the projector and vomited once more. The realization that I had drank myself into such a stupor that I was neglecting all safety standards was unnerving, but it paled in comparison to what I saw on that film reel. Among the choir of miserable faces chanting the shaman's song, I saw a familiar face. Among those tired, helpless eyes, I saw myself. The true demented nature of my research did not dawn on me until this morning. The footage that I am asked with understanding is not just disturbing, it is dangerous. In the wrong hands, the effect, the curse that the footage carries can be used for unthinkable evil. I am, once again, forced to consider the Institute's strict rules against keeping written records of research. If the wrong hands and the right resources were to meet, the shaman footage could easily be weaponized. With a big enough projector, entire nations could be trapped inside of the film reel. I cannot risk being even partially responsible for the misuse of this technology. My research will continue, that is without question, but I cannot risk detailing it within this journal. Sharing any of this information, making it accessible to anyone but me would be a crime against humanity. 
Once I regained my composure, I took the required safety measures and continued to observe the aspects of the tape that could be tied to its mystic qualities. I will continue to do so tomorrow and the day after that. I now understand the importance of my work at the Institute. I now understand the necessity of all those strange precautions. The Institute must be kept secure at all costs. If knowledge of the tape ever left those winding hallways, humanity would be doomed. It troubles me to think that I am but a single man in the possession of a single secret. Herkel, Alieva, Markrov, the other scientists which I march through the forest with every morning. It's so sweat upon my back to even guess at the research that they do. Dr. Herkel was right. I cannot think about the others. It will drive me mad. I must only focus on my own slice of insanity. I dread the arrival of the hotel sirens come morning. I dread what the future will bring, but I know I must persevere. My body is in shambles, but there is science to be done. The Cabinet of Fever Dreams is written and produced by Mike Jesus Langer and is brought to you by patrons such as Moo, Serafina L, Lucky J. Horton, Alan Rawl, Kuss, Bob Condor, Chicken Mixer, Daniel Wengel, and Mr. Creepypasta. If you'd like to join these fine folks in supporting the show and get early access to episodes along with a bunch of bonus content, drop by patreon.com slash Mike J. Langer. That's all for tonight, comrade. See you here next episode for another chapter of the Journals from the Institute. Glory to the labor.